Welcome to the show, folks. This is session 41 of our synchronized study in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. We're going to be in Luke chapter 13, verse 1 to 21. And folks, in these next 21 verses, we're going to notice something drastically different about Jesus' attitude toward those he's trying to save. So many cults out there that refute the deity of Jesus Christ try to say that he was a good man and a prophet, that his teachings were godlike and godly, but he was not deity himself. But we're going to see evidence of the contrary. Jesus is going to express emotions that could only be felt by God. A prophet would not feel the things that Jesus is about to express that he feels. Jesus will begin showing evidence of being a loving God who is personally devastated by the rejection of those who just won't believe him or trust him. And he's not hurting for himself. He's hurting for them. He's hurting for them. Jesus will show evidence of suffering under his own personal grief toward those who will not accept him. And we'll see that because instead of saying believe and be saved, which has been pretty much the message up until now, instead of believe and be saved, it's now repent or perish. And it's not repent of sin because he could have done that all along. Everybody he approached up until now, they were all sinners. But he always said believe and be saved. Now he's going to say repent or perish. Why? Because it's not repenting of sin. It's repent of the refusal, the stubborn refusal to accept what's right in front of your faces. You know in your hearts, I'm the Messiah. Won't you accept this? Why won't you accept it? So let's get started. Luke chapter 13, starting in verse 1. Oh, wait a minute. By the way, there are a couple of things that are about to be mentioned in these first few verses that the Bible doesn't explain. Nowhere else in the Bible does it give us any insights as to what they're talking about, but the investigative reporter Luke assumes that the audience knows what he's talking about, so he didn't offer any explanation. Um, just putting the pieces together historically, H.A. Ironside put together the fact that an uprising among certain zealots from Galilee were causing a stir, and the Roman governor Pilate had commanded a squad of soldiers to put an end to the rebellion. And in doing so, a number of the Galileans had been killed in the very courts of the temple. So that's a big deal. Meanwhile, an accidental occurrence took place somewhere else, in which a damaged tower had collapsed and a number of the people had been killed. And neither one of these things were explained or explored in the Bible, but they're about to be referenced here in the next few verses. So let's get started. Luke chapter 13, starting in verse 1. It says, Just at that time there arrived some people who informed Jesus about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mixed with their sacrifices. And Jesus replied by saying to them, Do you think that these Galileans were greater sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered in this way? Folks, he knew their hearts, and they were thinking the same thing that a lot of people think today. When some atrocious, grievous, horrible injustice is committed against someone, the first thing that pops into people's minds is, well, why did God allow it? He wouldn't have allowed it unless they deserved it. Otherwise, God's not paying attention, and he dropped the ball on this one. And people are not ready to believe that, so they're inclined to think, well, he must have deserved it then. God was punishing them. He was disciplining them. And folks, there's usually a third reason that the human race is not wise enough to know or understand. God knows what those things are. We do not know those things. We cannot figure them out. We won't understand them until we get to heaven. Sometimes God gives us a little insights here and there. 
but most of the time he just tries to explain to us that we need to trust him. He said that not a single sparrow falls to the ground without the father's consent. So if he consents it, there's a good reason for it. We may not always know what it is. But the attitude of some people, like the people here in this chapter, Luke chapter 13, is that the people who were killed by Pilate must have been especially wicked sinners to be allowed by God to die this way. And Jesus replied by saying to them, verse 2, Do you think that these Galileans were greater sinners than all the other Galileans because they have suffered in this way? I tell you, no. But unless you repent, you shall all perish just as they did. Or what about those 18 in which the tower in Shiloh fell and killed? Do you think that they were more guilty offenders than all the others who dwelt in Jerusalem? I tell you no. But unless you repent, you will all perish just as they did. Now, folks, you know, this is, uh, that's, that's pretty spooky language. Here they are talking to Jesus about two incredible national disasters that's taken place. One was an accident. The other one was on purpose. Both events were incredibly traumatic to the people of Israel. And here comes this man, Jesus, who says, unless you repent, you're going to wind up just like them. Now, folks, you know, they got to be thinking, what is he talking about? What's what? So Jesus gave them the following parable. This is verse six. It says he told them a parable. He said, a certain man had a fig tree planted in his vineyard, and he came looking for fruit on it, but did not find any. So he said to the vine dresser, see here, for these three years, I have come looking for fruit on this fig tree, and I find none. Cut it down. Why should it continue to use up the ground, deplete the soil, intercept the sun, and take up room? But the vine dresser replied to him, leave it alone, sir, just this one more year, till I dig around it and put manure on the soil. Then perhaps it'll bear fruit after this. But if not, you can cut it down and out. Folks, remember this parable because Jesus is going to refer to it again later. And he's going to tell the disciples, remember the parable of the fig tree. Much later, Jesus will pass a fig tree that is not producing any fruit. He will touch it and kill it. And when you read that passage by itself, it doesn't make any sense unless you come back here and see where the foundation of this whole fig tree business gets started. And a lot of people misinterpret what the fig tree is all about. They say, see, a fig tree represents a Christian. And if it doesn't bear fruit as a Christian, then God will take them out of the picture, either isolate them or even kill them. Now, folks, there is plenty of scripture about fruit bearing and about how God deals with trees that don't bear any fruit. He prunes the branches that don't bear fruit and he'll even prune a tree down to its stump, but not to kill it. Even if it gets pruned down to the level of a stump, a stump still lives and it grows. So there's plenty of scripture about God pruning trees. But the fig tree, the fig tree is something very special. And if you look at the context of Jesus bringing up this parable, he's not talking to people who are saved. He's talking to a group of people who are still in disbelief. He's talking to Israel. Look at the context of this parable and where it's listed. He's addressing a group of people who will not repent. They think that all of their sinfulness is hidden and tucked away under the hypocrisy of all their religious traditions. And that's why Jesus is using a fig tree as a symbol for Israel in this case, because it was the fig tree that was first used by Adam and Eve to hide their sinfulness. Remember how the story goes? They used fig leaves. They sewed them together to cover up their nakedness. And when God found them, he had to show them, no, it can't be fig leaves. 
It has to be animal skins, proving to them that innocents had to die to pay for their sin. Animal sacrifices all throughout the Old Testament, folks, symbolized the coming sacrifice of Jesus on the cross. And just as Adam and Eve tried to hide their nakedness under fig leaves, Israel is hiding its nakedness under religious hypocrisy and ritualism. So Jesus uses a fig tree as a symbol for Israel. And look at this parable, folks. Verse 6, he told them this parable, a certain man had a fig tree planted in his vineyard. If the fig tree is representative of one nation, Israel, then the vineyard represents all nations, the entire planet. And the man who had this fig tree planted in his vineyard is God the Father. And he came looking for fruit on it, but did not find any. So he said to the vine dresser, See here, for these three years, I have come looking for fruit on this fig tree, and I have found none. What's the three years all about, folks? That's symbolic of Jesus' ministry. It's been a little over three years. He knows it's months down the road. He's going to be sacrificed. He's going to be killed. For a little over three years, God the Father, through Jesus Christ, the Son, obeying the Father's orders, they've been looking for fruit. And they have found none. Now, there have been a handful of people here and there who've accepted Jesus for who he is. But the greatest amount of faith, for whatever reason, the greatest amount of faith that Jesus has received from people were Gentiles. It's very strange. The nation of Israel, they're the ones that represent God to the planet Earth. They're clueless. The religious leaders, they don't get it. The authority figures, they, they have absolutely no clue. They oppose Jesus at every turn. So he said to the vine dresser, symbolic of Jesus, he said, see here for these three years I have come looking for fruit on this fig tree and I find none. So cut it down. Why should it continue to use up the soil, deplete the soil, intercept the sun, take up room? But he replied to him, leave it alone, sir. Just this one more year till I dig around it and put manure on the soil. Then perhaps it will bear fruit after this. But if not, you can cut it down and out. And that's the end of the parable. There's no interpretation. That's why I'm getting into it. Folks, when we keep reading, that's why about a year later, some months later, actually, it, it'll make it a solid four years, that the fig tree has still not borne any fruit. And that's why Jesus curses the fig trees. Several months later, we're kind of jumping ahead, but it all starts here. Okay. And the vine dresser, it's just typical of Jesus. He's called our intercessor. You've got God the Father saying to his son Jesus, cut it down. Why should it continue to use up ground and deplete the soil, intercept the sun, take up room? But he replied to him, leave it alone, sir, just this one more year till I dig around it and put manure on the soil. Then perhaps it will bear fruit after this. But if not, you can cut it down. Verse 10. Now Jesus was teaching in one of the synagogues on the Sabbath. And there was a woman there who for 18 years had an infirmity caused by a spirit, a demon of sickness. She was bent completely forward and utterly unable to straighten herself up or to even look upward. Now, folks, I just want to interject something real quick. It's from this verse that a lot of groups will go in one of two directions that are extremes. One extreme is to suggest that Every disease, every infirmity, every cold, every headache, every sign of physical problem 
is somehow the direct result of a demonic attack, and therefore conventional medicine, conventional surgery, conventional means of any kind is a waste of time, and all you can do is pray and pray and pray and pray and pray. And that's all you're supposed to do. And if you don't get your prayers answered, then you're supposed to die, or you're supposed to keep the headache, or you're supposed, or whatever it is. Some Christians say that all diseases or infirmities is the result of a demon, and that everybody has to have that demon prayed off of them, or they need to quit sinning so they can get well, or something like that. And folks, that's just absolutely ridiculous, because there are plenty of examples throughout the scripture of crippled people being healed. Demonic activity had nothing to do with it. There was even a case in which somebody was blind from birth and Jesus was asked, what sin did he commit in order that he had to be blind or be born blind? And Jesus said, nobody sinned. He was born blind to fulfill a purpose in which he would glorify God right here, right now. I'm paraphrasing a bit, but that was the gist of it. We covered it a few sessions back. You know, it's really sad that there are people out there who are suffering under various illnesses And the illness itself isn't enough. They have to suffer under the ignorance of other Christians who have caused them to believe that they're suffering in this illness because they're a wicked sinner or they can't pray right or don't know how to pray. It's just, it's sad. But uh, there's another extreme that's just as bad and they completely rely on medicine. They completely rely on the studies of the psychiatric community and the psychological field. They completely rely on medicine. And folks... The scripture makes it very clear it is better to rely on God than in man. You rely on man, you're going to be disappointed. So the truth is, folks, I believe is somewhere in between these two extremes. Once you read Ephesians chapter 6, it's made very clear to us that we don't wrestle against flesh and blood, that the battle is in the supernatural sphere, but we still live in the physical world at the same time. So you don't ignore physics. And you don't ignore the spiritual realm. You acknowledge both at the same time and use your wisdom of both to come up with a solution. I believe that all diseases, whether we're talking about mental illness or physical illness, physical problems, whatever it is, every bit of it is the result of something that was done by a fallen angel somewhere, perhaps even Satan himself. But that doesn't mean that a magic prayer is going to fix everything. It can. But sometimes the Lord will lead you through the wisdom he gives you to take an aspirin. It's not a sin to take an aspirin. Other times God might convict you and say, whatever you do, don't take an aspirin. Pray instead. Sometimes it'll be a combination of both. You'll begin praying and God will lead you to doctors who have researched whatever your problem is. And you will be led to certain procedures that will benefit you. And these doctors, whether they know it or not, they are working in cooperation with God because you're the one who put those doctors in the Lord's hands. And so what happens is God gets the glory. He's the one doing the work. He's using the doctors. They are his tools. Other times, God will say, whatever you do, stay away from these doctors and go to these other doctors instead. Everything everywhere is pretty much a result of a spiritual battle taking place behind the scenes somewhere. And this woman is an example of that. The King James says, Behold, there was a woman which had a spirit of infirmity for 18 years and was bowed together and could in no wise lift up herself. 
The Amplified says an infirmity caused by a spirit, a demon of sickness. She was bent completely forward and utterly unable to straighten herself up or to even look upward. And when Jesus saw her, he called her to him and said to her, Woman, you are released from your infirmity. Then he laid his hands on her and instantly she was made straight. And she glorified God. She thanked him. She recognized him. She praised him. But the leader of the synagogue became indignant because Jesus had healed on the Sabbath. And he said to the crowd, there are six days on which work ought to be done. So come on those days to be cured and not on the Sabbath. But the Lord replied to him saying, you hypocrite. Doesn't each one of you work on the Sabbath when you loose your ox or your donkey from the stall and lead it out to water? Well, then ought not this woman, a daughter of Abraham, whom Satan has kept bound for 18 years, shouldn't she be loosed from this bond on the Sabbath day? And even as Jesus said this, all his opponents were put to shame and all the people were rejoicing over all the glorious things that were being done by him. But this led Jesus to say the following. He said, what is the kingdom of God like and to what shall I compare it? It's like a grain of mustard seed, which a man took and cast into his garden, and it grew and waxed a great tree, and the fowls of the air lodged in the branches of it. And again he said, To what shall I liken the kingdom of God? It's like leaven, which a woman took and hid in three measures of meal, till the whole was leavened. Folks, those two parables Jesus has given before, we've already interpreted them, but I don't want to let that go this time either, because notice the context of these two parables. So many study Bibles... Put in their little study notes, they say the mustard seed is the gospel and the tree is the church and the birds that lodge in it are all the lost souls that come into the tree and find shelter. The same thing with the leaven in the meal. That the meal is the world, the leaven is the truth and sooner or later all the falsehood is going to be gone, all the lies are going to be gone, it's going to be nothing but truth. And there's study Bibles that promote that. But folks, look at the context Look at the context of these two parables. Jesus went into a synagogue, he healed a woman, and he was reprimanded for it by the religious leader. And Jesus called him out, called him a hypocrite. That's the number one reason why folks are dropping out of church. They cannot stomach the hypocrisy. Then somebody will tell them, well, that's no reason to not go to church. We're all hypocrites. Don't you know that? Well, you're a hypocrite. I'm a hypocrite. We're all hypocrites. People who say that obviously don't know what the word hypocrite means. The word hypocrite means you're a liar. It means you're a fraud. It means you're two-faced. The word hypocrite is the Greek word for actor, which literally means second face. Your real face is underneath. You're putting a fake, a fraud, a facade on top to fool everyone else into believing you're one thing when you're not. And there is absolutely no room for hypocrisy in the Christian life. Here this woman is, who's Jewish, she's a daughter of Abraham, but she's also a faithful Jew. She recognizes God when she sees him, unlike the religious leaders. And she faithfully comes to this synagogue, and 18 years she's been dealing with this infirmity. Nobody recognized that it was a spiritual oppression. Nobody! She's had this disease for 18 years, this spiritual oppression. And this woman who has been seen bent over and bowed in for 18 years, is suddenly made straight after one touch of Jesus' hand. And the religious leader, instead of rejoicing in the presence of God, instead of rejoicing that this woman was healed, all he can think about is his religious rules. 
And the rules that he demands everyone else keep are rules that he himself doesn't keep. That's why Jesus said, you hypocrite. If it's okay for you to loose your ox or your donkey on the Sabbath, then why can't I loose this woman of her disease? And the stupidity, the blindness, the hypocrisy of religious ritualism is what led Jesus to give these two parables again. He's already given them before, the parable of the mustard seed and the parable of the leaven. And these two particular parables are right in line with what just took place, folks. The mustard seed is symbolic of faith in God's truth, God's word. But the tree is too big, folks, because a mustard seed only grows into a fairly sizable bush. When it grows into a tree, it's an aberration. It's not supposed to do that. And the birds of the air that nest in it are symbols of Satan's imposters infiltrating the tree. And when you go back to Matthew chapter 13, when Jesus introduced all of these parables, he says that himself about the birds of the air. They symbolize Satan's agents. This fits right in line with what Jesus is talking about because he just had this aggravation from the ruler of the synagogue. And Jesus being from outside time, he remembers how all of this got started. He's the one that planted the mustard seed at Sinai. You have the truth of God given to the people through Moses, through Joshua, through the prophets. And yet it has grown throughout the centuries into this massive religious organization that does not know God. They don't know anything about God. They don't recognize God himself when he's standing right in front of them. And their rules and regulations have become an oppressive burden over everyone. If anything, they're making it harder for people to know God because they're claiming to represent God and they don't. And the reason why Jesus brought this parable up, it is a kingdom parable. Human nature does this to the truth of God's word. I don't know why we do it, but we do it. You give us enough time, we do it. It happened with Israel. The same's happened with the church. The truth was given to us, the faith of a mustard seed. We started off with Jesus dying on the cross, his resurrection. The truth of what he taught us was passed on to us through the disciples, through Paul. We have the Bible being put together. But then go through the centuries, the church just grows into this massive tree, and you've got Satan agents ruling inside this massive religious structure, so much so that people flee from it. That's where you had the Protestant Reformation, but it happens all over again with the Protestants. Then they get big. And then you have Satan's agents nesting in them. And then you come up with the non-denominational churches. Well, now they're getting big. And Satan nests himself in there. It happens over and over again, folks. And if you notice the seven letters in Revelation, the seven churches throughout history, the best church that received the most praise from God is the Church of Philadelphia, which happens to be the one that is so small, the people in it don't really believe that they're worth very much, that they're accomplishing very much. And yet God has nothing but high praises for them. Then right after that first parable about the mustard seed turning into a tree, which is an aberration, he says the kingdom of God is like leaven which a woman took and hid in three measures of meal till the whole was leavened. And some of your study Bibles will say, see, that's a good thing. Leaven's the gospel. You put it in the meal, which is the world, and sooner or later it'll all spread out and take it over. Folks, every place in the Bible, leaven is used symbolically to represent sin or false doctrine. Every place in the Bible. Remember when Jesus said, beware the leaven of the Pharisees. In other words, the hypocrisy, 
the lies, the falsehoods, the wickedness. Beware the leaven of the Pharisees. It's always used as a symbolic type of sin or false doctrine. The Pharisees were teaching false doctrine about the Sabbath. They were teaching false doctrine about grace. They had turned the sacrificial system into a money-making scheme. And they themselves were not obeying even one of the rules that they burdened the people with. Rules that God never set up. They set them up. God didn't set them up. And they didn't even follow their own rules. Beware the leaven of the Pharisees. We just had this religious ruler, ruler of a synagogue, not recognize the miracle that just took place. Didn't recognize that an 18 year infirmity was just removed by a miracle act of God, by the Messiah, Jesus himself, standing right there in front of him. No, all he sees is that, well, you can't do that today, it's the Sabbath. And he tells all the people there in the synagogue, don't come here to be healed of anything, it's the Sabbath. Beware the leaven of the Pharisees. What is like the kingdom of God? It's like leaven which a woman took and hid in three measures of meal till the whole was leavened. Folks, the accurate interpretation of this parable is that leaven is sin or false doctrine. Meal is the word of God, the bread of life, the truth of God. You've got three measures of meal, which represents what some would call a fellowship offering. Look that up. Meal is also a symbolic type of the word of God, the bread of life, the manna that was given in the wilderness. It's the truth of God. So what this is saying, what this parable is saying is that the kingdom of God, in other words, the one that was planted on the earth, the kingdom of God is like leaven, which a woman took and hid. In other words, this is not something that's being done out in the open. It's stealth. It's deceptive. It's behind closed doors. Three measures of meal, which everybody recognizes to be truth, God's word, God's food, the word of God. This woman deceptively hides false doctrine in the three measures of meal, in the word of God, in the truth, mixing it until as time goes by, all of it, all of it becomes false doctrine. Folks, that's exactly what happened with Israel and the religious system. You start off with nothing but pure truth, the word of God. But as time went by, false doctrine was brought in it nested there, it grew, and now this entire religious system, the entire system, is so backward that it will kill the Messiah. And the same thing happened throughout all the generations of church development throughout the last 2,000 years. You start off with truth, you start off with faith, it grows, Satan's agents get in there, and then false doctrine is interjected. And then all of a sudden, the whole organization is teaching false doctrine. Somebody discovers the truth again and leaves. And then all of a sudden, it starts all over. And then it grows. Then Satan comes in and puts false doctrine in it. There's false doctrine in every church age, folks. But there's always a remnant that God calls out. That's what the whole seven letters to the seven churches is about. You have seven different church ages of good people. In this organization, he's got good things to say about them. And he's got bad things to say about them. But every letter usually ends with a call to rise above whatever the problem is. And he's not addressing the whole group. He starts off addressing the whole group. 
but the call is usually toward anyone who is listening, anybody who has an ear. So he who has an ear, he who has an ear, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. He's talking to people individually, realizing that the group may not change, but you can. And if you have to come out of that group, then so be it. But folks, why does it say that a woman hid the leaven in the three measures of meal? Every word is there by design. All throughout the gospel account, an unnamed woman represents the bride of Christ, the church. And in every case that we found so far, it's a good thing, whether we're talking about the woman at the well or the woman who was caught in adultery. She was a sinful woman who confessed her sins, who acknowledged it. Her faith gave her forgiveness. But this particular woman is intently interjecting lies into the truth. The reason why it's a woman, folks, is because in this case, it's a Christian in disguise. It's the false church. I believe that the woman in this parable is an evil spirit who will become the woman who rides the beast in Revelation. The real church is going to be taken off the earth, but you're going to have the false church left behind promoting the Antichrist. Absolutely incredible what's going to happen. Anyway, folks, I hope I gave you enough to chew on for a little while. Um, we're going to stop it right there, and uh, we will continue right where we left off next time. Until then, we're out of here. Take care.